Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Money Podcast Unanswered Questions where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Richard John Charles Tomlinson who was born 13th of January 1963. He is a former officer of the British Secret Intelligence Service MI6 made famous in the James Bond films by Ian Fleming. He argued that he was subject to unfair dismissal from MI6 in 1995 and attempted to take his former employer to a tribunal. MI6 refused, arguing that to do so would breach state security. Tomlinson was imprisoned under the Official Secrets Act of 1989 and 1997 after he gave a synopsis of a proposed book detailing his career with MI6 to an Australian publisher. He served six months of a 12-month sentence before being given parole, whereupon he left the country. The book named The Big Breach was published in Moscow in 2001 and later in Edinburgh and was subsequently serialised by the Sunday Times. The book detailed various aspects of MI6 operations, alleging that it employed a mole in the German Bedenz bank and that it had a license to kill, the latter later confirmed by the head of MI6 at a public hearing. Now we get into what exactly a license to kill is. A license to kill is a license granted by a government or government agency to a particular operative or employee to initiate the use of lethal force in the delivery of their objectives. The initiation of lethal force is in contrast to the use of lethal force in self-defense or the protection of life. It is well known as a literary device used in espionage fiction, such as James Bond, Ian Fleming's novels. The legitimacy of deadly force usage from country to country is generally controlled by statute, particular and direct executive orders, the common law, or rules of engagement. Sir Richard Dearlove, former head of the UK Secret Intelligence Service MI6, testified in court as part of the 2007-2008 Diana Princess of Wales inquest in agreement with a statement that the SIS MI6 could only use force likely to cause injury if specially authorised to do so by the UK Foreign Secretary. Dearlove also testified in the same inquest that he was unaware of anyone ever having been assassinated by MI6 during his time as head from 1999 to 2004. Former MI6 agent Matthew Dunn stated that MI6 agents do not need a license to kill as a spy's primary job is to violate the law in other countries and if an agent is compromised they are at the mercy of the authorities of that country. The idea of license to kill is popularly known from the James Bond novels and films where it is signified by the 0000 designation given to the agents in the series who are licensed to kill. Bond himself is famously Agent 007. 
In literary portrayals, the license is presumed to be a discretionary one, distributed rarely and requiring extensive training to obtain, granted only to a handful of covert agents of the state in the interest of national security. The agent is not necessarily expected to kill enemies as part of a mission, but may receive legal immunity from prosecution in their own country if, in the agent's opinion, it became necessary to complete it. Tomlinson then attempted to assist Muhammad al-Fayyad in his previously funded investigation into the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, and al-Fayyad's son Dodi. Tomlinson claimed that MI6 had considered assassinating, and I'm going to butcher this name, I do apologise, Slobodan Milosevic, the president of Serbia, by staging a car crash using a powerful strobe light to blind the driver. He suggested that Diana and Dodi might have been killed by MI6 in the same way. However, Sir Richard Dearlove, head of MI6 at the time, admitted that plans of that nature had been drafted regarding a different Eastern European official, but that the proposal had been swiftly rejected by management. In 2009, MI6 agreed to allow Tomlinson to return to Britain, unfreeze royalties from his book, and drop the threat of charges. MI6 also apologised for his mistreatment. Staff at MI6 have been allowed employment tribunals since 2000, and have been able to unionise since 2008. Now we get into Tomlinson's early life. Richard John Charles Tomlinson was born in Hamilton, New Zealand, and raised in the nearby town of, and I'm going to butcher this name, Ningaruawahia. Sorry if I get that name wrong. He was the middle child in a family of three brothers. His father came from a Lancashire farming family and he worked for the Ministry of Agriculture and had met his wife while studying agriculture at Newcastle University. The family moved to the village of Armathwaite in Cumbria, England in 1968. I do apologise if I get any of these names wrong too, by the way. The young Tomlinson won a scholarship for the independent Barnard Castle School in Country Durham, where he was a contemporary of Roy Underwood and Rob Andrew, who went on to become England Rugby International. He excelled at mathematics and physics and won a scholarship to Gaunville and Caius College, Cambridge, in 1981. His fellow student historian Andrew Roberts remembers Tomlinson as a bright and charming undergraduate, popular with the boys for his drinking and sporting prowess, and with the girls for his dark good looks. End quote. His friends include Gideon Rackman, who wrote him a reference after his tutor refused to do so. Tomlinson completed flying training with Cambridge University Air Squadron and won a half blue for modern pentathlon. He graduated from the University of Cambridge with a starred first class honours degree in aeronautical engineering in 1984 and was approached by MI6 shortly afterwards, whose offer he turned down. Following his graduation, he took examinations to join the Royal Navy as a fleet air arm officer, but he failed the medical examination due to childhood asthma. Instead, he applied for and was awarded a Kennedy Scholarship, which allowed him to study technology policy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology with full funding during 1986-87. Following this, he was awarded a prize for the Rotary Foundation, allowing him to study in the country of his choice for a year. Consequently, he enrolled in a political science course at the University of Buenos Aires, where he became a fluent Spanish speaker. He continued to pursue his aeronautical interests and qualified as a glider pilot with the Feruza Aérea Argentina. Again, I apologise if I get that name wrong. During 1988-89, Tomlinson worked in Mayfair, London for management consultancy company Booz Allen Hamilton, which I've spoken about in previous podcasts. 
Now we come to his military and MI6 service. Finding his desk job unsatisfying, Tomlinson joined the Territorial Army in September of 1989 and after passing selection, served as a reservist with the SAS in the Artists' Rifles and then 23 SAS, qualifying as a military parachutist and radio operator. He represented Britain in the 1990 Camel Trophy competing in Serbia and crossed the Sahara Desert solo on a motorcycle. He enjoyed the experience and subsequently applied to join MI6 and officially joined the service on the 23rd of September 1991. He completed his training with MI6 and claims he was the best recruit on his course, being awarded the rarely given Box 1 attribute by his instructing officers including Nicholas Langman. Tomlinson worked in the SOV OPS department, operating during the ending phases of the Cold War against the Soviet Union. He was posted to a diplomatic role in Moscow and was one of the agents responsible for the retrieval of the valuable Mitrikan archive in 1992, which I'll cover that case in a separate podcast episode. From March of 1992 until September of 1993, he worked in the Eastern European Controllerate of MI6 under the staff designation of UKA-7. Whilst working there, it was discovered that the Conservative Party had been receiving donations from Serbian supporters. In November of 1993, he joined the Balkans Controllerate and was posted to Sarajevo for six months as the MI6 representative in Bosnia during the breakup of former Yugoslavia. There, he was a targeting officer with a mission to identify potential informants and gather intelligence. A soldier who escorted Tomlinson to Bosnia described him as a liability, a sulk, and a totally unprofessional, although Tomlinson has disputed these claims. From 1994 to 1995, Tomlinson worked in the Operational Counter-Proliferation Department. His first posting in this capacity was to work as an undercover agent against Iran, where he succeeded in penetrating the Iranian intelligence service. He posed as a British businessman and infiltrated a network of arms dealers that included Naham Manbar. The British government supplied the Iranians with materials for chemical weapons in order to gain intelligence on Iran's military program. Tomlinson's description of his Iranian activities are generally considered to be true due to his personal involvement and knowledge of details that only an insider would know. On the 13th of May 1994, Tomlinson resigned from MI6, suggesting in his letter of resignation that he had lost the motivation for a career with the organization. He was later permitted to rescind his resignation. MI6 dismissed him on May 22nd of 1995 as he came to the end of his extended probationary period. Tomlinson's probationary period had been extended over the standard six-month duration due to his senior line manager's doubts about his personality. Tomlinson claimed that he'd become suicidally depressed following the death of his long-term girlfriend from cancer and that he had been suffering from post-traumatic stress after witnessing violence against a civilian during the siege of Sarajevo and that MI6 had been ill-equipped to handle his condition. MI6 argued that he was dismissed for not being a team player, lacking motivation and having a short-term interest in the service, but later conceded that he had experienced a personality clash with a senior line manager. Another reason given for his dismissal was for going on frolics on his own. Tomlinson claims that no formal reason for his dismissal was ever given and that he was mid-assignment when he suddenly found himself barred from entering MI6 headquarters. Friends suggested that he was sacked after he complained about MI6's unethical tactics. Tomlinson argued that his supervisors had unfairly disregarded his personal circumstances. Tomlinson disputed the reason for and legality of his dismissal and attempted to take MI6 before an employment tribunal. 
However, MI6 obtained a public interest immunity certificate from the Foreign Secretary, Malcolm Rifkind. Having no further legal recourse to appeal against his dismissal, Tomlinson left the United Kingdom and pursued his arguments against MI6 by publishing articles in the international press protesting his treatment whilst working on a book detailing his career in the service. In 1998, the Parliamentary Intelligence and Security Committee recommended that MI6 should be subject to UK employment law. Since 2000, employees of MI6 have had the same employment rights as other British citizens, including written contracts and access to employment tribunals. However, MI6 refused to allow these procedures to be applied retroactively to Tomlinson's case. MI6 have not succeeded in obtaining another PII certificate since the Tomlinson case. Now we get into his book, The Big Breach. Tomlinson moved to Costa del Sol in Spain for 18 months from early 1996. Realising that a disgruntled former spy could be problematic for the agency, the aide-de-camp to the head of MI6 was enlisted to attempt to appease Tomlinson in February of 1997. He offered him a £15,000 loan and a marketing job with Jackie Stewart's Formula 1 racing team in return for a promise of silence. Tomlinson accepted the offer he claimed under duress, but retained the job for only a few months before he immigrated to Australia where his younger brother lived. Tomlinson returned to Britain and in October of 1997 was arrested and accused of breaking the Official Secrets Act of 1989 after delivering a seven-page synopsis of the big breach to the Australian Office of Transworld, a British publisher. On the 18th of December 1997, he was sentenced to 12 months in prison after pleading guilty. In August of 1998, after serving six months in prison and four months on probation, Tomlinson left the UK to live in exile. He said about completing the big breach, which was published in 2001 in Russia. The book alleged that MI6 had infiltrated the German Budson Bank with a mole and that the service had special means of writing in invisible ink. Other revelations were already public knowledge, such as that MI6 recruits are trained at Fort Mockton in Hampshire and that agents in the field often use the cover of being a journalist. After the Court of Appeal of England and Wales ruled in his favour, the book was made available in the UK. However, following the publication, the British government obtained a high court order to confiscate all proceeds from the book on the grounds that the government owned the copyright to anything written by Tomlinson. In September of 2008, MI6 ended all legal objection to the publication of The Big Breach, released the proceeds from the publication to Tomlinson, and admitted that the organisation's previous legal actions against him were disproportionate. However, it still refused to reinstate him or compensate him for the loss of his career and pension. Since 2009, Tomlinson has been able to freely travel to the UK. Now we come to the reception of the book. The Economist criticised the mess that MI6 had made in failing to handle the Tomlinson case properly. Quote, Recruiting Mr. Tomlinson looks like a bad mistake and his sacking seems to have been clumsily handled. End quote. The newspaper's reviewer complained, quote, There is little useful information in this breathless, whinging, and ill-written volume that a diligent reader of books about spying would not know already. End quote. Jimmy Burns, reviewing the book for the Financial Times, speculated that it was plausible that MI6's senior management realised they'd made a terrible mistake in recruiting someone who thought that espionage was just one big adventure. He concluded, however, that the book left me with a feeling that the spooks from Whitehall could have avoided a great deal of adverse publicity by agreeing to Tomlinson's ongoing original proposal, an employment tribunal held in camera, end quote. 
Former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, reacted angrily to Tomlinson's accusations in the book that he had a long-standing relationship with MI6, describing it as a disgraceful fabrication. Tomlinson removed the references to Mandela in the British edition of the book, conceding that Mandela was probably unaware that the officials with whom he spoke were affiliated with MI6. Now we get into other alleged breaches and assertions. First off, we have the list of MI6 agents. In May of 1999, a list of 116 alleged MI6 agents was sent to the La Roche Movement's publication Executive Intelligence Review, a weekly magazine which published it online. Its names included Andrew Fulton, who'd recently retired, Christopher Steele, David Spitting, and Richard Dearlove. MI6 biographer Stephen Doyle explained that most of the names were light cover sources who worked out of embassies or missions posing as diplomats. Doyle argued, and I quote, It is well known that rival intelligence networks know who these people are and accept them. End quote. MI6 claimed that Tomlinson had originated the list, which was something he had previously threatened to do, although he denied responsibility for it, and MI6 were unable to substantiate their accusation. Tomlinson wrote, quote, If MI6 had set out to produce a list that caused me the maximum incrimination, but caused them the minimum damage, they could not have done a better job. End quote. He also said, quote, It mystifies me why MI6 gave the list credibility. If they were really worried about the safety of their agents, they could have denied it. End quote. After the Sun newspaper called Tomlinson a traitor and published his email address, he received death threats and, fearing for his life, went into hiding for a time. Government officials later conceded that the list did not originate from Tomlinson. Now we come to his involvement with Diana, Princess of Wales. During 2008, Tomlinson was a witness for the inquest into the deaths of the Princess of Wales and Dodi Al-Fayed. He had suggested that MI6 was monitoring Diana before her death and that her driver on the night she died, Henri Paul, had been an MI6 informant and that her death resembled plans he saw during 1992 for the assassination of Yugoslav President Slobodan Milosevic using a bright light to cause a traffic accident. At the coroner's inquest into the death of the princess on the 13th of February 2008, speaking by video link from France, Tomlinson conceded that after the interval of 16 or 17 years, he could not remember specifically whether the document he had seen during 1992 had in fact proposed the use of a strobe light to cause a traffic accident as a mean of assassinating Milosevic. Although use of lights for this purpose had been covered in his MI6 training on being told that no MI6 file on Henri Paul had been found, Tomlinson said that it would be absurd after 17 years to say I can positively disagree with it, but I do not think the fact that they did not manage to find a file rules out anything either, end quote. He said he believed MI6 had an informant at the Paris Ritz, but he could not be certain that this person was necessarily Henri Paul. Now we come to his post-MI6 activities. In August of 1998, Tomlinson left the United Kingdom for France and shortly afterwards moved to New Zealand. Later that month, he was deported from the United States and in October of 1998, he moved to Switzerland before being expelled in June of 1999 after the Swiss authorities described his presence there as undesirable. He moved to Germany until he was hounded out by officials, whereupon he moved to Italy. In 2001, he left Romania in Italy, where he had been working as a waiter and a snowboarding instructor for the south of France, near Cairns, where he worked as a yacht broker for BCR Yachts. From 2006 to 2007, Tomlinson maintained a series of blogs detailing his treatment. His Riviera home was raided by police in 2006. 
In 2007, government lawyers decided not to prosecute him for publishing The Big Breach. The Crown Prosecution Service said there was no real prospect of conviction in a jury trial which would reveal sensitive matters. In 2009, MI6 agreed to allow Tomlinson to return to Britain, unfreeze royalties from his book, and drop the threat of charges if he agreed to stop disclosing information about MI6 and speaking to the media. According to the Sunday Times, MI6 also apologised for its unfair treatment of him. He now lives permanently in France and has retrained as a professional pilot. Now we get into his personal life. In 1998, Tomlinson was described as possessing the air of slight arrogance that goes with good looks, a hard-trained body, and a sharp intellect. The Geneva Press reported that he had a perfect command of French. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate this show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time next on Unanswered Questions. In 1965, the government established Bank Bumiputra Malaysia Berhad, BBMB for short, in order to help Bumiputras get more involved in economic activities. 